morning again. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1036. You know, prior to sophisticated military technology, soldiers knew the advantages of possessing the higher ground. On higher ground, you can see broader and further. You tire less easily versus those who are fighting you uphill. The enemy's weapons have shorter range and become less of a threat. It's no surprise then to find examples where having the high ground is important. From Sun Tzu's The Art of War, that famous line of Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. Okay, I could have done better than the Star Wars prequels. But the point stands, securing the high ground was Important in range warfare, it also became a source of encouragement to your troops fighting below. When they saw their captains standing, standing tall on high ground, it strengthened their hearts to endure the battle. Chapters 12 and 13 have portrayed our present struggle as a great war. The dragon makes war against God's people on earth. He works through a beast from the sea. He works through a false prophet, uh, uh, another beast from the sea uh, and the earth, right? And, and he, he works through, this, through, the, through the politics and the, and the religion and the economy to, of the world to, to gather an army that is opposed to Jesus' followers, but, but in Revelation 14, God gives a vision of the Lamb and His army possessing the high ground. And that's what this passage is about. To in, it's to encourage you uh, with a vision of Jesus reigning with His blood-bought people on high ground. So, in the midst of this war that you are currently in, This passage is inviting us to look up and to see Christ on high ground. So so let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now this brief little passage here breaks down into three parts. We see the church reigning with the Lamb. We see the church worshiping 
the Lamb, and we see the church following the Lamb. Let's look first at the church reigning with the Lamb. In verse 1, John sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And now this is, this is not the counterfeit Lamb that we saw in chapter 13, verse 11. This is the true Lamb of chapter 5, verse 6. This is Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain to ransom people for God. He stands on Mount Zion. Now, if we know our Bibles, historically, Mount Zion included Jerusalem. Uh, Zion also hosted the Temple Mount, where God would reveal His presence to His, His people. And God's anointed king also ruled from Mount Zion. And so, Zion kind of became known as, as God's mountain, God's holy mountain, the place where He dwelled and ruled His people in holiness. And Zion was supposed to, was supposed to portray the kingdom of God on, on earth, God's reign on earth. Psalm 50, verse 2, calls it the perfection of beauty where God shines forth. Psalm 48, verse 2, says that it's beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth with God as its fortress. But we know the story, the, the earthly Zion really never lived up to those ideals, did it? Israel rebelled, and the curses of the law required God to judge Zion and to tear Zion down. Sin made it impossible to rebuild the earthly Zion. If the true Zion was going to come, God himself would do it, and he would do it by grace. And it turns out that even that former Zion was just a pointer beyond itself to a heavenly one. One day God would enthrone a son on Zion's hill, right? We saw this a while back in Psalm chapter 2 where the nations rage, but God laughs because he has set his king on Zion's hill, his, his hill. So from there, we know that his rule would then bring heaven down to earth. God's king on Zion would possess all of the nations, What's well, no accident that, that John identifies Jesus as that king. If you glance back at chapter 12, verse 5 in Revelation, right? What do we remember there? He, he is the long-awaited child, right? Born of the woman. The, the one who is to rule the earth with a rod of iron, it says. That's from Psalm chapter 2. The dragon tried to devour him, but we saw that he was caught up to God and, and to his throne. And here we see him reigning from that throne, from the true Mount Zion. In other words, Jesus already stands with all authority on God's heavenly mountain. He's the king bringing heaven down to earth. By his cross and resurrection, he already conquered, he already secured the high ground. But notice... He doesn't stand alone. With him stand 144,000. Now, we've seen this group before, and if you want to know what we talked about there, you can go check that out online and on the sermon on chapter 7. But, but, but John, in chapter 7, verse 3, they are, he calls them God's servants. In verse 3 here, they are the people who he purchased from the earth. The same language appears in chapter 5, verse 9, when Christ purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Also, given Revelation's symbolic use 
of numbers, 144,000, is the product of 12 times 12 times 1,000. And those same numbers appear in chapter 21 of Revelation to depict the fullness of God's people. And so I take the 144,000 to symbolize the whole of God's redeemed. But also recall how the Lord had had counted them off in chapter 7, tribe by tribe. In chapter 7, verse 4, 12,000 from Judah and 12,000 from Reuben and 12,000 from Gad. and, And on the list goes. It sounds much like the list in Numbers chapters 1 and 2. And we saw there that God in Numbers, takes a census of Israel's warriors. God numbers the men from every tribe who can go to war as the people pass through the wilderness. Each company is numbered and each company is complete. So what we're getting here is that God's redeemed are pictured as a mighty army reigning with the Lamb. They stand victorious because their captain has conquered And at the same time, though, notice that they bear his name on their foreheads. They have the lamb's name, it says, and his father's name written on their foreheads. Well, that's reaching back to the the priest's turban in, in the Exodus, where the priests had the words, holy to the Lord, written on their forehead. So that's how John is seeing the church reigning in heaven. Not only are they God's royal army, they are also God's holy priesthood. And throughout Revelation, we know that this is what John calls the church, right? A kingdom of priests. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, the lamb purchased them. And he says he made them a kingdom and priests to his God. And here they are. We are seeing them now in chapter 14. They are reigning with the Lamb as mighty warriors, and they are worshiping the Lamb as holy priests. Now, the last time we heard about a mark on the forehead was uh, chapter 13, verse 16. The followers of the beast have the beast's mark on their forehead. And those who didn't have the beast's mark, they couldn't buy or, or sell. And we talked about how this isn't first a physical mark, it is a spiritual mark uh, that is then evidenced by who we serve and worship. So if you serve and worship the beast, then you get all the benefits of his power and his wealth. But for those who serve and worship the lamb, you don't get that power and wealth. From the world. The world hates Jesus. In many cases, you're the one that's oppressed and overlooked and ostracized. So we, we got this picture of the beast kind of and his people setting the world against the people of God. Now, I don't know about you, but living any length of time under that sort of oppression would cause you to ask some questions, wouldn't it? Are we truly victorious in Christ? When it comes to choosing Jesus over power and wealth in this world, is belonging to Jesus better? When my family suffers unjust treatment? When it's this uncomfortable? Right? When the, when the narrow gate that Trey talked about last Sunday, when that narrow gate is this hard, is it really better? Is suffering for Jesus' name the right path to victory? 
is following in Jesus' footsteps of suffering really how we conquer? Or maybe you ask a different kind of question. Maybe it's, I'm just so tired of fighting. Is this battle ever going to end? Well, the Lord Jesus knows that you face a great battle on earth. He knows that ruthless enemies like the dragon and the beast seek to destroy your faith, and and they want you out of the fight. But I want you to look at Jesus' gift to us here in the Word of God. Because right here, what He is doing for us is He is peeling back the curtain, and He is showing for us ultimate reality. He is showing us that our King has already conquered, and he has the high ground. And you know what? You're with him. You are with him. You are seated with him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, Paul tells us. The lamb already has the high ground. That's the picture here. And so it becomes an encouragement to those still in the fight. Don't grow weary in doing doing good. Fight the good fight of faith. Your Lord reigns. You have the advantage. He's bringing heaven on earth, and you will reign with Him. That is the assurance of this vision. Second, John sees the church worshiping the Lamb. The church worshiping the Lamb. In verses 2 to 3, John John hears a song from from heaven, but he kind of uses a mixture of, of metaphors to describe the experience, what, ones we probably wouldn't associate with one another, like thunder and harps, right? Uh, but he says it, it's like the roar of many waters. Uh, Ezekiel once described the Lord's voice this way, as a roar of, of many waters. At other times uh, in the Bible, it describes a great multitude, like the sound of a great multitude uh, roaring, right? The, you know, you, when I was younger, you know, you'd, I'd go throw, throw, throw from the pitching mound that I created in my backyard, and, and uh, you know, strike three would come, and what would I? <sighs> right? You, you just, you can hear the, the roar. Of, 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 of people sound, sounds like a roar of many waters, like a, a great multitude, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, we had a downpour last Thursday, and I just went out in the courtyard, and, and just, it's, the sound is just all around you. you. You can hardly hear anything else. The same with the loud thunder here. The, only, only thunder inspires a sense of awe, doesn't it? We'll find both of these metaphors, they they appear again in chapter 19, verse 6, to describe a great multitude at the very end who are rejoicing in God's reign. Next, he he says uh, the sound was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, you know, don't think of the the big pedal harps that you you need a truck to haul around. Uh, Think of the smaller, like, lyre harp that you can hold uh, comfortably, right? It's probably more comparable to our guitar. Um, so this, it's an instrument of joy. Uh, the Psalms would often include these harps when they would celebrate uh, the Lord's worth or His saving work. And so John is kind of overlaying these, these metaphors to help us sense the wonder of their worship. It's, it's, 
It's all-consuming and yet beautiful. It's, it's all-inspiring and yet it's filled with joy and, and dancing and celebration. And that's why he calls it a new song. A new song. In the Psalms, a new song uh, meant that you were so freshly stirred by God's saving work that you, that you sung of his saving work, right? He, he lifts you up from the miry bog and he sets your feet on the rock and he puts a new song in your mouth, a song of praise to his God. And that seems to be the subject of their song here is God's saving work has, has compelled them to, into this, this roar of, of celebration. At the end of verse 3, he says that, that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed. See, there's God's saving work, who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, that word redeemed gets thrown, a lot, th- thrown around a lot, right? People nowadays, they redeem music, and they redeem media, and they redeem culture, and you redeem just about anything, right? But when the Bible uses redemption, it has a people in view, not things, Okay? And it has a very specific idea in view that is built around themes from the Exodus. So redemption has to do with a payment being made to loose people from captivity. Redemption has to do with a payment being made to loose people from captivity. Now, I want you to think back with ex- to Exodus, right? The people were in slavery no ability to liberate themselves. They are, they are powerless. Someone greater than the people, someone greater than Pharaoh, someone greater than the Egyptians, right? God has to liberate them. But he did it at the cost of the firstborn. Except he didn't take Israel's firstborn, did he? No, in their place, God provided the blood of a lamb. So their freedom came at the cost of lamb. Now, fast forward to Jesus, because that's a picture of what he does for us. Far more serious, we are slaves to sin. And we lack the ability to liberate ourselves. We are powerless. For uh, some, someone greater than us, right? someone greater than Satan, someone greater than sin itself, God has to liberate us, and he does it at the cost of his son. Jesus is the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So our freedom came at the cost of Jesus's life. That's why the 144,000 sing. Followers of the beast, they don't understand this song. They can't understand this song. They they can't sing it because they're still in their sins. Angels don't even understand this song. Only the redeemed can sing it because they know what it means to be lost and then to be found. Only the redeemed can sing it because they know what it means to be enslaved and then to be set free and forgiven. When you experience this redemption... You cannot help but let it come out in song. Isn't that why you sing? 
Isn't that why we gather on Sunday mornings to, to lift our voices? You see, you are an outcropping, just a, a little outcropping of this vast heavenly choir that will one day flood the earth with praise. Third, John sees the church following the Lamb. John sees the church following the Lamb. He captures this with several images, uh, starting in verse 4. He says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, some will take this to mean the 144,000 are males who've chosen celibacy for the kingdom. But that's hard to uphold if, as I've tried to show you, that the 144,000 represent all, the, all of God's redeemed. Also, we shouldn't read this as disparaging sexual relations since elsewhere Scripture celebrates sexual relations within the marriage. It's also not a knock against women as if something in their nature was unclean. John even uses a woman in chapter 12 to represent God's people. So what, what is he saying then? Well, if, if you turn to me for a moment uh, to the picture that John painted in verse 1, the 144,000 kind of depict the church as this royal army, right? And, and again, in, in chapter 7, he had numbered them off, much like the male warriors were numbered off in the wilderness. They, they represent the whole people, but, but only the males went off to war. Uh, something else that, that develops in the Old Testament is that any time the men went off to war, the law required that they keep themselves from women for ceremonial cleanness. All right, this is, this is why David became such a problem, right, with Bathsheba. He, he wasn't doing what the other guys were doing. So the men set themselves apart to serve the Lord in a, in a special way with this sort of this single-minded devotion. Now, take that image from the Old Testament, which again is, is being used as a symbol to depict the church. Take that image and bring it into a book like Revelation where God also pictures the rebellious world as a great prostitute. We will get to her in chapter 17, but for now, just know that, that she is in cahoots with the beast. In warring against the church, she is adorned with purple and scarlet and gold, and she, she rides the beast, and the beast uses her to, to lure people into all kinds of, of unfaithfulness. The kings of the earth become intoxicated with her seductive abominations and sexual immorality. Not this army, though. Not this 144,000. Not the redeemed. They are like soldiers who are wholly committed to their captain's orders. The world tries to seduce them, but, but they show an undivided devotion to the Lamb. They are like those Christians in chapter 3, verse 4 of Revelation, who have not soiled or defiled, same word, have not defiled their garments by making moral compromises with the world. 
So they set themselves apart to serve Jesus exclusively. And this seems to be uh, his reasoning with the phrase, for they are virgins, right? Instead of sleeping around with the world's false gods, they have reserved themselves wholly for Christ. It's no surprise that John then adds that these follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They hear their captain's orders, and they follow him, even when it's hard. Right? In, the, in the Gospels, Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. In John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And in that context, following Jesus means that your life looks like a seed going into the ground and dying in order to bear much fruit in order to save others. Revelation presents Jesus in, this, in the same light. If you, if you go throughout Revelation and you, and you look, well, what is following the Lamb look like? You, you will see that to follow the Lamb wherever He goes looks like faithful witness to God's Word in the face of opposition, even, it, even if it costs your life. Faithful, oppos- uh, faithful witness to God's word in the face of opposition, even if that costs your life. And that's why Revelation upholds faithful saints like Antipas in chapter 2 and the martyrs under the altar in chapter, chapter 6. They exemplify of what it, what it looks like to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It means laying down your life as an offering to advance the word. And then finally, verse 4 says, they have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, in the Old Testament, the first fruits were that initial part of the harvest dedicated to the Lord. You brought them to the priest, and, and once you presented them at the temple, they were holy gods to be used for God's service alone. They were set apart for the Lord. And that same idea is present here. Redemption isn't just about escaping slavery. It's that you are are freed now to belong to another, right? Now to be devoted to another. You you are freed to serve as an offering like the first fruits were. were. You were redeemed to serve as an offering in God's presence. And in this context, that looks like staying faithful to the Lamb in word and in deed. Notice... In their mouth, no lie was found. So they are the opposite of the beast and his kingdom, right? They, they, uh, the beast and the false prophet, they spread the dragon's lies. They have followers that do the same. In chapter 2, it was teachers like Balaam and Jezebel uh, deceiving the church into idolatry. In chapter 22, verse 15, it describes the beast people as those who love falsehood. But these followers of the Lamb, they speak the truth. They speak God's truth. They do not suppress the truth about God. They bear witness to the truth about God. They bear witness to the truth about God and His redeeming work in the Lamb. And by doing this, they image the Lamb Himself. Did you know that Isaiah 53 describes Jesus this way? They made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit 
in his mouth. And so what he's saying here is that when you belong to the Lamb, when you follow the Lamb, you speak like the Lamb. You look like the Lamb. They also stay faithful to the Lamb indeed. Their, their dedication shows itself in blamelessness. You, you can tell them apart from the world because they, they choose the path that's the morally upright path. Instead of these, these moral compromises with the world, they, they follow the Lamb in righteousness. They are, as, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2.15, children of God without blemish, shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I, I love that, that text in Philippians 2.15. I recently learned that, that shining as lights is talking about starlight, shining in the beautiful starlight, shining in the darkness. And Paul's saying that's what you are in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. You're like stars when you walk out this blamelessness. So that is the vision, the, the, the church reigning with the Lamb, the church worshiping the Lamb, and the church following the Lamb. Now, what are some ways this, this vision could impact you, you and me? I think one is make sure that you stand with the Lamb. Make sure that you stand with the Lamb. I think Revelation's message, I talked about this before, you know, you're either part of the city of man or you're part of the city of God. You either belong to the woman of chapter 12 or you belong to the prostitute of chapter 17. You either are on earth with the earth dwellers, deceiving, or you're seated on the high ground with, standing on the high ground with Jesus, the Lamb. Like, Revelation just puts the world and you're either in one or the other. So one thing to, to make sure is that you stand with the Lamb this, the contrast in chapter 14 is so stark when you read this next to chapter 13. You either belong to the lamb on the high ground or you belong to the beast followers who, according to this picture, have already lost. And who, according to the rest of chapter 14, will perish under God's punishment. So which people do you belong to? It all comes down to whether you believe the lamb's blood saves it all comes down to whether you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So do you know the forgiveness of your sins? Do you know what it means to be free from slavery to sin? Are you trusting the Lamb's blood to free you? Don't perish with the, with the world. This picture is showing that the beast kingdom is collapsing in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. So take Jesus at his word. Trust in his saving work. Identify with him in baptism. You will find yourself standing and singing with the redeemed. Two, if you are standing with the redeemed, don't give up the fight of faith. Don't give up the fight of faith. And I, I mean this in a couple of, of ways, all right? Now, some of the first Christians hearing this message, we know because we read about it in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. We read about their churches. We read about what's going on in their churches. And some of the Christians hearing this were, were flirting with the beast kingdom, weren't they? Christians in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, they start making compromises with the world. They, they start tolerating teachers 
which kind of make room for idolatry here and there and make room for sexual immorality here and there. Others in Laodicea, were just, they were just happy to be rich and comfy in Rome while forgetting their need for Jesus. And the same temptations persist today with idolatry and sexual immorality and the comforts of this world. But a vision like this says, don't give in to the beast. His ways may look attractive and rich and powerful, but it's all going to come crashing down. He doesn't have the high ground. Jesus does. Victory lies with the lamb. It never lies with the beast. So stay faithful to Jesus and you will reign with him. That's one way this encourages us to stay in the fight and resist temptation. At the same time, there are other Christians, right? Uh, I, love the, I love that Jesus, you know, he addresses each Christian where they are, right? And so there are these other Christians in, in uh, uh, Smyrna and in uh, uh, Philadelphia, right? And they weren't, they weren't flirting with the world like the other churches. They were faithful to Jesus in witness and they were faithful to Jesus in suffering. And Christians like those... Their struggle would look more like those who grow weary under suffering for righteousness' sake. Right? Their, their struggle would look more like those who are like fighting this long, dark battle at Helm's Deep, wondering if their efforts are, are going to make any difference, right? While they're waiting for the white horse in the east. Some of you feel like that. Some of you are asking the the questions I posed earlier. Is suffering for Jesus' name the path to victory? Or maybe you're the one saying, I'm just so tired of fighting all the time. Is this battle ever going to end? Are we really going to win? And this vision says, yes, yes, you're going to win. Don't give up the fight. Look, your captain already has the high ground. He's got you with him. He has secured victory for all the redeemed. The world will seek to tear you down and destroy you, but Jesus reigns and you will reign with him forever. So take heart. That's how this vision works. You see, Revelation has this consistent pattern of the, of the tribulation of the church on earth and Jesus reigning in heaven, right? It goes back and forth, back and forth. John's in tribulation, chapter 1, verse 9. John's in tribulation, and then he gets a vision of the glorified Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3, the church is in tribulation. Chapters 4 and 5, there's a vision of Jesus on the throne. Right? And then here, chapters 12 and 13 are laying out the tribulation of the church on earth. Chapter 14, boom, Jesus is on the throne. Back and forth. He's going, this is where you are. Look to Jesus. This is where you are. Keep looking at Jesus. Why? Because seeing the exalted Jesus, seeing the exalted Jesus is crucial to your perseverance. It's what keeps us going. When you see the exalted Jesus, His Lordship gives you courage and assurance and hope. So meditate on the reign of Jesus. Think about His glory often. Read Revelation and memorize these visions. Find music that sings of these things. Or write some of your own. And then tell Gary so we can sing it. Remind each other 
of what Jesus is truly like. By meditating on the exalted Jesus, you will find endurance both to resist temptation and to keep fighting the good fight of faith till he comes again. Which leads to another point. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, it could be argued, as some do, that this vision foreshadows a future earthly Zion. Usually they might associate it with the millennium, right? But, but there are other places in Scripture that suggest it's more than a future assurance. It's also a present reality. And we read one of the Scripture verses earlier from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, that says, We have already come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. And so that present heavenly reality will one day materialize on earth when Jesus returns, but it's just as true right now. You're already seated in the heavenly places with him. In other words, it's not just about who you will be. This vision reveals who you are right now. You are a kingdom of warriors devoted to one captain, Jesus Christ. You are a holy priesthood set apart for God's purpose. You are redeemed from the world's ways. Your identity is bound up with the Lamb. His name is on your forehead. He has set you apart as truth bearers in a culture teeming with lies. You are a blameless offering in God's presence. If you belong to the Lamb, that's who you are. This picture is of you. So, become what you are. That's the ethic of the New Testament, right? Become what you are. Make your your life into further alignment with who God has made you to be. Serve Jesus with single-minded devotion. Follow Him by taking up your cross daily and seeking to love your neighbors. Spread His truth to others and bear witness to His name. Follow the Lamb in laying down your life. Yeah, we we are a mighty army, right? But, But don't start thinking, well, that your warfare is in politics and military power. We follow our captain in the way that he conquered, and he conquered by faithful witness to God's word in the face of opposition, even if it costs your life. Also, guard yourself from making moral compromises with the world and and walk blameless. This is how we conquer. We, We become what Jesus has made us to be, a holy army, right? a priesthood, a holy priesthood. And then lastly, keep Jesus central in everything. Keep Jesus central in everything. Did you notice the the whole passage centers around the lamb? (laughs) I mean, the lamb is at the center of our reign. He's the one leading the kingdom of priests, and we follow. The lamb is at the center of our redemption. It's through his cross and resurrection that we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. The lamb is at the center of our worship. His saving initiative is what compels the the redeemed to sing and worship him. The lamb is at the center of our identity. His name is written on our foreheads. 
The lamb is even at the center of our morality. It's not just about doing the right thing, but how those right things exhibit Jesus's worth and Jesus's authority and Jesus's character to others. So everything in the kingdom revolves around Jesus. That's part of this picture. So that's what our lives should look like. Everything revolving around Jesus. Our unity as members in this church. Our unity, our relationships, our goals as a family, our prayers, our songs, our generosity, our evangelism efforts, our service, our vocations, our times of rest even, our thanksgiving, our parenting, our hospitality, our efforts in missions, all of it should have Jesus Christ at the center. He is the center of God's revelation in Revelation. He is the center of God's revelation in all the Bible. He will be the center of everyone's praise in the new heaven and the new earth. Until then... We come together to remind each other of this at the Lord's table, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper keep Jesus at the center of the life of the church and the witness of the church. Until the new heaven and the new earth come, we celebrate at the Lord's Supper his redeeming work and we remember in this, at this table together, we remember that everything we're about as a church and as Christians must center on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision. We thank you that Christ reigns, that he has conquered, and that you have seated him on Mount Zion. We ask that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.